podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week on the podcast, Ali Carter. He's been one of Snooker's leading players for the last 10 years and he's also had a lot of well-publicised health problems. And I have a good chat this week with Ali, who's a real tough character. He's had to be, I think, to come through it all, not just about his career on the table, but about all the things that have happened off the table as well. Ali, tell us how you got into snooker. How did you discover the game? Um, I discovered the game by my my dad bought a six by three foot snooker table and put it in the front room at home when I lived in a little village called Tolsbury. Um, and he primarily bought it for himself and uh, and his mates because he was a good golfer and he wanted something to do in the winter because he was a, a fair weather golfer. And I just uh, started from there. And how quickly did you take to it? Did you sort of think early on, oh, this is something I really like, or I could be good at even? Um, that's a long time ago now, it's 30 <laughs> years ago, um, 31 years ago, when I was about five or six. Um, I think my dad um, recognised that maybe I could be quite good at it and sort of pushed me in the direction of, um, of snooker quite quickly. I started on a full-size table when I was seven, um, which there's some footage on the documentary that I made for Eurosport um, of me putting a few balls when I was only seven. So, yeah, it was quite a quick progression, really. Mm. But you lived uh, in Essex Way, which, of course, still is quite a thriving area for snooker, but certainly back then, this was like the, the boom years of the game. So the junior scene and the amateur scene was quite strong for you. Very strong. Um, you know, we had, um, obviously, Ronnie O'Sullivan, um, Stuart Bingham, uh, there was Paul Hunter then, um, Matthew Stevens was. I mean, I played Matthew when I was ten years old at Pontins in Hemsby, and it's funny because I played him in a match this season. And mm. to think, like twenty six years on, mm. we're still doing the same thing, and mm. um, had half decent careers at it. So you know, it's a job for life, isn't it? Mm. But I guess that scene sort of toughened you up in terms of the match play. You're sort of not just playing; you're playing matches, you're playing competitive stuff. Oh, definitely. There was the star of the future um, with, with a big tournaments like at Hemsby and uh, Prestatin, sort of two or three festivals a year. And it was constant. I was Brian Morgan was my coach then. Uh, the Pro-Am circuit was massive. The amateur circuit then was massive. And it was about learning your trade. And you'd go into a Pro-Am with 128 runners on a Saturday morning at, like, at Whittam, the matchroom in Whittam. And... Uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd get drawn. I remember playing Nick Terry one year, and uh, I won a frame when I was about 10, and then, then what? You, then you'd lose 3-2, and then you'd win a match, and then, then it was all about progressing. And then you'd, you know, get to the last 16, make a court, have a really good run, get to a series, and then obviously finally you'd win, win something. But, you know, that side of the game isn't there at the moment for the, for the amateurs or the, the professional, the people that are turning pro to sort of learn their trade and, 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 and build up. To the, to the top level straight in at round one playing Mark Selby really what chance have they got turning pro is a big step but you were very young did you see it as uh, just a continuation of what you're already doing or did you think right this is where it gets really serious now because I'm going to be doing this for a living yeah I mean I was playing um, I was working um, at the snooker club as soon as I left school working behind the bar brushing the tables earning a modest wage I think I was on 65 quid a week and 25 quid of that I had to give my mum for housekeep so um <laughs> I didn't really like that too much, mm. so it was a, it was um, it, that was back in the Blackpool days, Blackpool days, sorry. And um, I turned professional, went to Blackpool, and was up there for like six to eight weeks. Fortunately enough, I had a sponsor to pay all my expenses, but it was under the strict understanding that as soon as I started earning money, it was a, a debt that I was in sure. into him for. It wasn't like here's ten grand, mm. go and spend it on whatever you want. It mm. was like 
give me money to pay my hotel, you know, pay my tournament entry fees, and then when I won money, it got me back out of the red and back into the back, so mm. to speak. Mm. And what was it, those early days like um, in terms of, did you feel like you were on the tour? Because obviously when you're at the qualifiers, it's not like being at the Crucible or the big, big tournaments. You, you, it's quite anonymous, isn't it? Oh, big time. Um, there was, I think there was about nine or ten tournaments back in the day, and uh, I lost, I remember, it was ten matches to qualify for Sheffield, and about eight, seven or eight to qualify for everything else. And I remember my first year as a pro, I think it was the International Championship or International Open or something. And I remember losing to Joe Johnson in the final qualifying round, 5-3. Right. Uh, I won seven matches to get to the final qualifying round. And I think I won 30-odd or 40 games in my first season, and that was considered a really good mm. a good year. Mm. You know, obviously Ronnie done exceptionally well, and he won like 75 or something. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was... Um, it, it was, but it was then. It was a route. A lot of the players at the start weren't really any good. Mm. But the first three or four matches were, you know, if you could play, you was going to win those. Mm. And it was when you started playing that players like, you know, in the top one, two, eight, like Sean Lanigan maybe mm. or Jason Pegram, people that could play. Mm. Then they'd maybe beat you because they had a few years' experience, mm. and then you'd start overtaking mm. them to get to the mm. latter rounds, like the '64 players who were then Brian Morgan's, um, you know, people, people like that. And what was your game like then? Because you're known now as like an all-round match player, a terrific all-round player. Did you have that then, or were you like a lot of young players just sort of going for everything? Oh, I don't think I ever went for everything. I probably played a lot of the wrong shots at times, mm. but still, still do now. But I think I've definitely sort of um, <coughs> developed into a hard match player, which you do with losing matches that you shouldn't yeah. lose. And yeah. uh, I've lost plenty of those in my career, as every other player. Um, but yeah, if I had the game now that I had the, the back then then I'd have done a lot better. OK, well, your first big breakthrough, I think, for most people was uh, the 99 Grand Prix. Yeah. You, a BBC tournament's a, a big deal. And you beat Stephen Hendry, who then was the, the world champion and, of course, the, the man to beat. What was that like? Because, obviously, you, this is kind of your first big moment, I guess, in the, in the programme. Yeah. It was funny because my mindset, which I'm, I'm trying to work on a bit, a bit more of that this season now, um, I, I looked at it as if... I've got absolutely nothing to lose mm. here. You know, what? I relished playing him. I loved him. I loved it playing him. And uh, I, I, I turned him over quite a few times, I think, in the early part of my mm. career. Um, but I remember that match. I think I won 5-2. It was at, at, at Preston and Grand Prix, yeah. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I loved playing. And I found if you could get over who you was playing, you got just as many chances against him mm. as you did anyone else. But it was the scare factor of playing him. And players would put in uncharacteristically unchar- poor performances against him, yeah. and I never. I played my game and I played well against him. That's yeah. why I beat him a lot. Yeah, and also you're sort of showing everyone what you can do because, you know, you can you can tell everyone you're a snooker pro, but they can say, well, I never see it on the TV, you know. But that, that was a big occasion. Hendry was he just won his seventh world title earlier that year. He was the man. Yeah, he was the man, um, and it was quick for me to. Um, so I got to obviously the semi-finals and then I think a month later I won the Ben Smith's yeah. Championships which then was a really good event to win mm. there's some really good names on that trophy uh, Ronnie Matthew Stevens, Paul Hunter McManus all them and my name's on there as well mm-hmm. um, and then that obviously I, I qualified for the Masters when it was a, at the um, uh, conference centre the conference yeah. centre yeah that's it and I played Steve Davis there so within that two or three months of mm. being a nobody I'd earned 50 or 60 grand, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I was like back-to-back BBC events mm-hmm. down the business end. So mm-hmm. I come from a bit of nowhere to being sort of like a recognised pro sort of thing. Mm. And did you feel that you were improving? Did you feel maybe your game was changing and you, you were developing that all-round game you talked about? 
No, I don't think so. I think I was still one-dimensional then. Um, you know, I was, um, you know, yeah, I was just one-dimensional and still learning the trade. I think some people, I was a young 19-year-old or 18-year-old. Um, some people have old head on young shoulders, but I was still young then and probably a bit petulant and didn't have the best attitude. Same as now, really, but <laughs> you can't, you know, if you rub your fingerprints out, they grow back the same. Mm. We're all the same. I've had a lot to deal with, and sometimes, you know, the, the frustration can get on top of you. But there must have been an enjoyable period, though, because, like I say, you've broken through you, at the Masters, which is a big deal. Were you starting to feel, right, this is actually, this is my career, this is not just a bit of fun, I'm, I'm young, this is a career I could do forever? Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely, yeah. It was, um, you know, obviously I mixed it with the top boys and beating Hendry so early on, and then I went to the Masters, and don't forget, Steve Davis won it, I think, two years mm. before that, yeah. when I played him in the mm. first round, it was 4-1 down and won 6-5. Um, and Ken taught me a lesson in the quarterfinals, I think it was, um, yeah, he beat me 6-0 and made four centuries. Um, <laughs> some things never leave you, and uh, that was one of them. OK, well, you mentioned, obviously, it's well known you've had health problems, and the, the first one was the Crohn's disease, um, which was sort of, I think, 2003 was mm. when you first sort of learnt about that. What, what are your memories of... You must have obviously felt ill, you have gone to the doctor. How did, how did that unfold? Yeah, I was... Um, oh, I can remember getting bad stomach spasms of pain. Um, over quite a long period of time, but particularly in the morning when I'd get out of bed and I'd get out of the shower and then I'd get, start getting this pain when your body starts working and I'm going to start sweating again and oh, it was just horrendous and I went through lots of different tests to find out what was wrong, but it takes such a long time to diagnose. Um, but it did really trim me up for a long time, for a lot of years. It has a, it has a mental effect on you and obviously a physical effect, you know, a mental effect with tiredness. You get very... Um, irritable you know and and when you're irritable and you've got bad stomach snooker is not the best game to play because the things that can happen mm. um so I'm, you know i'm not using that as an excuse for sometimes when i've you know probably not had the best attitude but it certainly has been a contributing factor um but yeah i mean it's lived with me for 10 years really up until the last two or three years um where it sort of left me alone a bit and you know my results have started improving again and uh you know, now I've got the other bit out of the way. Uh, it's, it's all good. And what what is Crohn's disease? For people who don't know, it, it affects your diet in particular, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a disease of the bowel, um, inflammation of the bowel um, that stops. It's like if you get a hose pipe and bend it in half, you get that kink and it stops the water. Well, basically, your bowel is just stricturing like that. So food has trouble passing through foods that are particularly more difficult to digest, which causes an inflammation. Your bowel contracts because obviously it has to push stuff through all the time, which then causes the stomach, um, the, the stomach cramps, the pain, the vomiting. The you know the, the other side of it is going to the toilet ten times a day. Then you can't go at all. You know it's all these things. And when you're bending over a snooker table with a suit on, it's not the easiest thing to deal with. So how long do you think it took you to sort of get used to the maybe changing lifestyle that you needed? Well, it was weird because it's a, it's a really difficult thing to talk to, to sort of justify because or to explain because one minute you can eat something and it won't affect you. Mm. You think, oh, that's all right. But then when you're having a flare-up, you can eat it and it will cause you all sorts of trouble. Mm. So uh, at its worst, you never really know what you're safe eating and what you're not. Mm. And it's only years of experience of having it that you know when your stomach starts to play up just wind down the food a little bit just like go on the soup sort of thing to give your stomach a rest you know where before I'd think well I was alright eating that last time so I'll eat that again and then you get pain and it was a vicious cycle definitely Okay, well you, you carried on despite all that you carried on climbing the rankings and we come now to 
2008 in the World Championship where you had mm. that great run to the final. Now, we're actually recording this at the Championship League, which is now in Coventry, but back then it was the first year of it. It was at Crondon Park, and there weren't as many ranking events, nowhere near as many as there are now on the circuit. And you played in just about every group of that, and I think that, that match play definitely helped you, didn't it, kind of the Crucible? It did. I think, I'm not sure what group I came in at, but I think I lost in the final of two or three mm. events and lost in the semis, and I, was, I played so many matches, and I earned a lot of money that year at, at the league. And... Um, it was convenient for me. It's ten minutes down the road. Yeah. I'm not a lover of travelling particularly. Mm. I like being at home. So everything fitted in. And then when I went to that World Championships, although my personal life was a mess, really, I was absolutely skint, um, in, in debt, had tax bills, all the rest of it. And uh, so that real breakthrough in 2008 sort of uh, changed my life, really. Mm. So th- we'll come to the, the, the final of uh, the World Championship shortly, but of course you made the maximum as well early on, mm. which was a, a great thing to have like, on your CV to make a 147 at the Crucible, probably that great last black. What are your memories of that? Of course, it came the day after Ronnie had had one. I mean, my memories of it were, um, I think the score was 7 all at the time. Um, so it was like there was two frames before, mm. so you know, I wanted to be 8-7 in front, mm. so the worst I could be was 8-all yep. going into the final session. Um, and then obviously got on 30, 40-odd, and then I thought, hang on a minute, the red's it's on here, and then 64, and then you won win the frame, and I thought, right, you know, this is a chance now, just carry on potting one ball at a time. But then the real the, hit, the pressure really came on when I sort of think I played a good cannon on the black for, with two reds and opened them up perfectly. So then down to the yellow, and I thought, right, you've just got to do this. This is your chance to get yourself right out of the stuck, you know. <laughs> and um, I remember saying to myself on the black, that, um, well, you are, it sounds stupid and it sounds a bit dramatic, but I thought your whole life boils down to this moment. Mm-hmm. I can turn the corner here in my life, or I can miss it, mm-hmm. and... It's going to be another one of them, oh, yeah, it's happened to me again. You'll mm. be the victim again. And I remember saying to myself, come on, you swear words. <laughs> um, you're having this. Mm. You're having it. And uh, I fought it, and uh, yeah, my life turned around ever since that moment. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you win the match. That's, that's one thing. But to have that sort of uh, euphoria and that momentum to carry through the rest of the tournament, the fact you know you've done that, yeah. it must have been... Well, it could have been maybe the decisive factor to get to the final. Oh, of course it was. Uh, it took, it, you know, I think I was on 80 grand for getting to, for, for making the max, and then I think it was a cause of the World Championships that I'd got myself in. So I was on over 100 grand straight away, and the, the financial pressure that took off mm. me. Because what happened was I earned a lot of money for, for being young. Not, I earned well for, a bit for, for a young boy. And then we had the lean years when there was only six tournaments and tobacco sponsorship when so from being a top 32 player guaranteed a, a lot of money and being it was relatively easy to win money mm. um, to six tournaments where we was on two grand for turning for, for winning a match and earning nothing and I carried on spending like I was when I was earning it and mm. um, so of course I was young and you do what every, every young person does and waste your money um, and yeah, 2008 sort of turned it round for me. Mm. Okay, so you get to the final, which is the biggest match of the year. Um, everyone, you've grown up watching it, you want to be in the final. What were your thoughts, A, about being in the final, and B, of course, about playing Ronnie O'Sullivan, who would have been, I guess, favourite against anybody? Yeah, um, to, to be honest with you, I, I probably didn't expect to win, mm. um, but I kept trying to tell myself all the right things. Come on, this is your chance here. You know, he's not... He's not He's not God. When you get on your knees and say your prayers, you don't say them to Ronnie O'Sullivan, mm. do you? So, you know, not that I'm a religious man, but I'm just using it as an example. Um, but, yeah, 
in all honesty, the whole two weeks was too. I was just too drained mm. to even compete. In all honesty, I think I could have competed because I was playing really well and confident. But my semi-final game didn't help me out at all. I um, I was fifteen fourteen down to Joe Perry. Ended up winning seventeen fifteen at about eleven o'clock at night, half past eleven. And you'll know yourself. We had loads of commitments mm. with interviews, BBC TV interviews after. I think I finally got to bed at four in the morning. Right where Ronnie beat Hendry with a session to spare. Mm. So he had that evening off, mm. then the whole next day off, mm. and then he's turning up at two o'clock, fresh as a daisy, for the final. Yeah. You know, he's hit the ground running, and I'm like, looks like I've done ten rounds with Mike Tyson, <laughs> and now I've got to go and do another ten rounds, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, and I just didn't have it in me, in all honesty. Mm. But did you sort of reflect afterwards, maybe it took a few days, OK, well, I've, I've got to the world final. I mean, there's a lot of great players who've never done that. Yeah. So to end the season like that, to look, I mean, because I don't think it's an accident. The next season, you won your first ranking title. Yeah. Wales. Yeah, it was definitely it was a building block, wasn't it? Um, you know, the Crondon Park was really the, you've mentioned it before to me. That was the the initial spark that then fed a you know into a little flame into a fire, and that was what started getting my my career going. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I was knocking on the door for winning tournaments and then obviously getting to the final of the world and competing on that, in that level, making a maximum under that pressure. I sort of thought to myself, yeah, I can, I can go on and win tournaments. And since then, really, 2009, bearing without the year involved, I've pretty much won a tournament every year. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's good. So the first one, the Welsh Open, um, I recall you, you were trailing Joe Swell at the interval halfway stage but then you came out and you did play great didn't you that session I mean you barely missed anything yeah I did I was 5-2 down and 1-9-5 um, but I was again I was getting in, in the way of myself I was 5-2 down and wanting it too much and just sort of I remember having a chat with Stephen Sylvester who at the time I was working with quite a lot of sports psychologists and he just said look stop getting in the way of yourself just let yourself flow still try hard but you know just 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 sort of let go of trying to win because it's what is trying to win is stopping you. Mm. You know, you want it so bad, you want mm. it too much. Mm. And I did, and um, I think I, I made a couple of centuries and 90 and 80 odd and really won seven frames in double quick time. Mm. And did you feel, I mean, how did you feel at the end? Did you think, right, it was about time I won one or is this going to be the start of winning more? How, how do you feel in those moments when you got the trophy? Yeah, I felt it was unbelievable because it had been such a long time coming in my career and I had a lot of... Um, disappointing moments to win that was very special and uh, I remember Willie Fawn texted me after and said I'll be a first of many and I, went, I thought Jesus Christ if I manage to win one more tournament I'll be so happy you know because <laughs> I, I know how hard it is to win and anyone who wins a ranking event a proper ranking event will um, will tell you how hard it is and um, you know but since then looking back since 2009 with everything I've been through and I've chalked up sort of four made well full ranking events now and the Paul Hunter Classic so not bad mm. and somewhere in amongst, amongst all this you, you find time to become a, an airline pilot well, yeah. I mean, obviously you know as the captain where did that interest start? well I <clears throat> as I said to you before I was skinned and um, I was looking at my career weren't really going anywhere I was sort of around the 30 of 20 or 30 in the world bearing in mind there's only six tournaments mm. so you weren't making any money mm. um, I thought to myself well, I, I want to I'm going to go and get myself a job. Now, what would I like to do? Something. But being a snooker player, you are a recognised person, you are a somebody, and it gives you that certain feeling that a normal job, nine-to-five job, would never be able to give you. Mm. Although it gives you the highs, it gives you the lows. You know, it's, it's both ends of the spectrum. So I was looking at a job that would make me feel, you know, good as a person and a professional person. And I thought, yeah, always loved aeroplanes. And uh, I thought, I know what I'd like to do. I was fortunate enough to meet a guy who's with me today, um, 
Mike after I lost. I think I lost to Marco Fu in the fire, in the last sixteen of the World Championship. No, I sorry, I beat Fu in the first round and lost to Ronnie. And he came up to me in the club after and just said, "I oh, watch you on telly and blah blah blah." I said, "What do you do for a living?" He said, "I'm an airline pilot. I've got a light aeroplane. Um, why don't you fancy a flight? Come up and have a little go." So I didn't follow it up. Um, saw him again two weeks later, and he said, "Come on, it's a nice day. Let's go up the field and right. get airborne." Right. And uh, as soon as I'd done that, I thought, "Yeah, I could. Uh, I fancy doing this." But it's you know you don't. It's quite a long process, isn't it? You don't just sort of pass your test in a week. You've got to like obviously have a lot of lessons and. Yeah. So what what was it about once you got up in the air that you thought, "Yeah, this is this is for me." To be honest with you, I never really loved it. Mm. I saw it as a as a job, as a as a good job, a, a high paying job, um, you know, a potentially high paying job if you if you, you know if you go all the way down the road with it. Um, and I was looking at it like that. The more I've done and the more knowledge I've built up about flying, the more I enjoy it. Mm. It's like some the, the more you know about something, the more comfortable you are in mm. that environment because it's uh, quite it can be quite a daunting environment, you mm. know. Um, but I'm in and around a lot of my friends are pilots, so although I'm not a commercial pilot yet, I'm, all, I'm in and around that talk, and my mate who I fly with all the time, he's a captain for Ryanair, so I'm in, I'm doing things the right way, mm. and ask, getting, asking all the right questions, and so yeah, it's, it's good. But so is it something that, say, you, you decided to knock snooker on the head at some point, you could actually become like a BA pilot or something? Or Maybe something? not BA, yeah. I wouldn't, because... I <laughs> British Airways, they um, they're quite hard. The recruitment process right. is quite hard. But it's something you could do for some. Oh, definitely like for EasyJet, yeah. or yeah. you know, EasyJet. My my missus Stella, she um, she approached EasyJet last year, and they wanted to put me for a modular course and pay right. for it all. But obviously, I haven't got the time to do it at the mm. moment because I can earn more money putting balls than I can flying airplanes. But when that reverses, <laughs> you won't see me at events anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got another world final course, and again, this was four years on, so it's 2012, mm. and again. You're playing the same man again, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Um, I mean, again, he's going to be favourite against anyone, but did you think, oh, why couldn't it just be someone else? <laughs> of course I did. He's the only player um, that I, I felt at that time that could beat me. Mm. That I, didn't, I was playing really well in that, in that World Championships, and it took a special performance to beat me, and he played unbelievably well. And I think he even said afterwards, or in his book or whatever, that that was probably the best he's ever played. Um, so yeah, you know, it's a t- it's a bit of pill to swallow because I feel like that year I don't think I was ready in 2008. I was too tired and inexperienced. But getting back there in 2012, I think if I'd have played anyone else, I possibly would have been world champion. Mm. But around this period, you won you won uh, in Shanghai and then just after you won in Germany. So you were very much a top player. Um, did you feel? With that status, that you know, you should be in finals. You should be winning tournament. How much pressure do players put on themselves to perform? Um, I don't know. It's a difficult one because I can't really answer that question, Dave. Because I was having so much other stuff going on in my life with um, my, my Crohn's and obviously the testicular cancer and all that. I never had time to think about. Right. I should be getting the finals. Mm. I was more dealing with health issues that I had mm. because I think it was just after 2013 in the world, wasn't it? Or was it 14? 13 that mm. I got the testicular problem and then that was ongoing really for two years because I had that done and then I was nine months all clear and the lung issue came and that was another six months really that I was, so it was constantly trying to get better and my mm. snooker was pretty much on the back burner mm. Okay well you mentioned the testicular cancer diagnosis 2013, I mean obviously there are words nobody wants to hear um, 
what sort of went through your mind? Was it clear what the treatment was going to be and what the sort of program was? It was. It was um, when I discovered I've got it. It was pretty much. Um, I went for the scans and all that, and they wanted to know how if it was self-contained, if it had spread anywhere else. And at that time, they was quite happy that it was just contained in my testicle, and they could just remove remove one, and and that would be it. So that's what they did. And then they put you under surveillance for for um, for a year. Every month, I was having blood tests, and then nine months in. Obviously, I went for a blood test, and he phoned me up and said, oh, I just want you to go and have a scan, because um, just as a routine. And I thought, OK. So I went and had a scan, and then um, that was when it revealed that I had a shadow on my lung. And uh, that was when it was clear that I had to have chemotherapy to get over that, and then an operation at the end of the chemo. Yeah, so this is a sort of year later, and obviously within snooker, we had the, the tragedy with Paul Hunter that everyone would know about and you would know about. You've already looks like you've beaten one form of cancer, now you've got another one. I mean, it must have just been awful. Yeah, I thought it was curtains at the time. Um, I really did. I just, you know, obviously all the bad things come into your head and thinking about Paul and, you know, I, I thought, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to be another one here. It was it was a horrible time. Um, but it was a pivotal moment. I think I've said it before in an interview when I went and got diagnosed with the lung and he said, oh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a rough ride from now on, but, you know, you can get through it. I'm treating you as um, curative care, not palliative. And I thought, right, OK, well, he's trying to cure me, so that's good. And my son, I came home and my son said, Daddy, you're my best friend, and I walked in the front door, and I just thought, right, this is not... I don't care what they do to me, it's not going to beat me. Mm-hmm. I just, like, rolled my sleeves up, as you know I do, and, uh, you know, thought, right, let's get stuck in, and, um, you know, they can keep pumping as much as they want into me, I'm just going to suck it up and, you know, until it's gone. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've done. So, yeah, I mean, it's very gruelling treatment, but I guess when, I mean, obviously in the end it's, it, it was good news, you beat it, but the emotional toll it must have taken, I ah. suppose maybe even after the treatment when you look back. You know, I can't explain to you, to anyone, the, the when you're going for scans and, and waiting for the results, whether the chemo's worked, and then uh, you know, I had to go for a brain scan because the natural path is it for it to go to you from testicle, stomach to lung, and then it goes to your brain, like Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And when you're going for a brain scan to see if you've got brain cancer and then having to wait three days mm. to then see the consultant afterwards, after you've sat in an MRI scanner like for, for, for an hour, your head is just completely gone, honestly. Mm. I was just sitting there like, what? And you're sitting in the weight room and I'm thinking, I can go in this room now. He can tell me I've got brain cancer and it's all over. Mm. There's nothing I can do for you. Mm. Or he can say, you're going to be all right. Mm. When you're facing that, you know, you think to yourself... <laughs> How, how little things that we worry about in life, how pathetic they are, mm. you know. But only in that moment you're quick to forget. Mm. Of course, like, at that time I'd have killed to miss the final black on a max mm. at, the, at Sheffield and have no troubles and mm. all that. But, yeah, it was a... It was a that, that was the hardest part. The treatment was very tough. Of course it was. Had a lot of side effects. But it was the constant waiting to get to the next point for them to say, oh, and there was never any answers... Do you know what I mean? You'd say, oh, we're going to send you for a scan, and, and you'd expect them to give you to say, yeah, give you an answer or something to go on, but they wouldn't. Oh, just, we want one more cycle, and then we're going to scan you again, and then we're going to scan you again, and then we want to do an operation. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And then at that, n- n- nowhere through that point were they saying to me, oh, everything's going to be fine, you know, because mm. they can't. Mm. So how did you sort of, how did you sort of keep going? I mean, how did you sort of stay sane through it all? I don't think I did stay sane. I think I went and I think I'm, I'm still suffering from the effects now. I'm a little bit mad, but 
No, obviously my family really. Mm. Um, my mum was was great. Um, yeah, and obviously I, I had a big involvement with my son. He was there with me a lot. Um, Did he understand what what was happening? Or? No, he was mm. still too young. He was only four, three or four. But um, you know, obviously I lost all my hair and everything, didn't I? And uh, but yeah, it was mainly focusing on him really, and trying making sure I was around um, to being a father to my son. Mm. So you came back and you played in, a, in an event in Hong Kong, an invitation event, and you won it. And it must have been nice just to be back playing, first and foremost, but to win the tournament, it was like a fairy tale. Yeah, it was, mate. It was meant to be, David. I can't even justify how, how much that was. I mean, I'd only just got my hair back and, you know, I hadn't really... I'd, I'd played a little bit, because I kept trying to play snooker all throughout my chemo, mm. believe it or not, just to do something. Like I was going out on my mountain bike and going bi- biking, because it was in the summer, mm. and I thought, I don't want to look like a, you know... I don't want to look like an AIDS victim or something like that with no hair and white as a sheet. I thought, get out, get some bio oil on your head and get a suntan. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So that was what I did. And I was turned up at the club and uh, used to get my cue out and I couldn't feel my fingers like what Paul Hunter was mm. like. And my vision was very blurred and all this. And I could just kept trying. I just kept trying and I just hoped it would come right. And then... I think uh, at that tournament in Hong Kong, it was a great tournament because it was out of the limelight, although it was still a good tournament to win. Top players in it. Yeah, a lot of top yep. players in it. I beat Sean in the final, um, 7-6, and played really played some good stuff. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, there was one chat that Brian Morgan said to me that on the phone before, because I hadn't played for months at all, and he said, Ali, don't get stressed out about playing. He said, you could have two hours practice literally mm. he said and you'll be back you'll be fine you'll be knocking in tons all the time mm. and uh, I just thought well yeah I played the game all my life I'm not going to forget in two months am mm. I yeah and, and it must be nice to be back playing because although obviously compared to the illness snooker doesn't matter actually once you get back to it it does matter because it's your profession and you're proud professional and you want to do as well as you can so just to get back to doing what you love but actually because it's your profession, you want to do, you want to do well at it. Exactly. Of course, it was. It's massive. It's always been. You know, any snooker player will tell you it's. It it, it defines how you feel as a person mm. when you're doing well. The feeling of winning and what that gives you inside is just you can't explain it to anyone who's not who's not won a tournament or who's not a sportsman and, and experienced those feelings. And yeah, I mean, it's my living. It's what provides me with you know my standard of living, my son's standard of living. You know, all, all the people around me. Snooker, you know, I'm Ali. I'm known as Ali Carter, the snooker player. And when you're not playing snooker, you have to rediscover yourself as a person. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But this is why I think it's good that you can still get the hump in matches because it shows that you do still care. Because if you didn't care, there'd be no point. Oh, oh, it hurts me more than ever now Mm. when I lose. I hate it. I hate losing. And when that goes, that's when I'll be in trouble. You know. And uh, sometimes, you know, me and Mark Williams had a little. Not a spat on Twitter, but I was winding him up and he was winding me up. And, it's uh, not like him, is it? Like no, and he was saying, <laughs> oh, you get the arm and bang your cue, whack, whack and all this. And I thought, I thought, yeah, uh, I remember a time when he's punched the table or two, but his way is to act like he doesn't care mm. and he's super relaxed. But, of course, he cares more than anyone. Mm-hmm. And um, But we've all got different ways of showing it and dealing with the pressure. Mm. And his way is to shrug it off. Yeah. I wish I could be like that. Um, mm. But if I was a bit more like that then maybe I'd have done better and if he was a bit more like me maybe he'd have done better mm. but I mean he's done yeah. amazing anyway you know it's difficult isn't it who who, who does do it right mm. well you also won the Paul Hunter Classic which again I guess was a special victory because it was in Paul's name and you, you've gone through 
a horrible process that sadly he didn't make make it through to the end of. No, exactly. And again, I remember um, at Stansted Airport, I was sitting in the, and it was probably one of the. I wasn't that far into the season of the, of the new season because I missed a lot of the season before, and I really did not want to go. I remember sitting in the departure lounge, and I think I phoned up whoever at the time and um, I said oh, I'm not getting on the plane I'm going to go home I just didn't want to go at all and then for some reason I don't know why but I was talking to Jason Ferguson before we got on the plane we were standing in the queue to get on the plane and I said to him God Jace wouldn't it be lovely if I won this and uh, that was <laughs> that was when, when he came out and presented the trophy and we shook hands that's what he said to me he said can you remember that conversation you won it and yeah it was just it was almost as if it was meant to be mm. I remember in the final I was 3-1 in front and uh there's a picture of Paul Hunt on the wall, and I just kept looking at him, thinking, "Come oh, on, this is this is for you, sort of thing." Mm. And also, this season you won your latest tournament, the World Open, which is a big money ranking event, and it, it's sort of knock-on effects from that. Not just the tournament, but you get the champion champions, you'll be in the, the Grand Prix and the Players Championship and all that sort of stuff. It must be nice to, to just to win another tournament, another big event. Yeah, exactly. Um, Got back in the top sixteen as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in all in all honesty, within a year, I've gone from. You know, thirty odd in the world, back in the top sixteen in the Masters, won a big event. You know, gone up and and, and after everything I've been through, to drop down to where it was and then get up up back up to the top again, um, is is unbelievable. When I sit back and really think about it, but the trouble mm. is, you, you don't. You just sort of yeah. take it and you stride. And now I want to go further. I'm not yeah. looking at what, how far I've come. Mm. I'm looking. I'm not looking at that. And now I'm looking at this again, mm. which mm. is which is good to sit and have a chat with you and realise all all the things where I've been and. You know what I've what I've come through to winning a big event again and uh, getting my name back on the map and like being in the Masters and then mm. you know I won't have to qualify for Sheffield mm. this year and all that sort of thing. Mm. That's another thing for everything. I've had I think this will be my 15th consecutive appearance mm. at the Sheffield mm. with all the health issues aside. Mm. So really I've done, I've done well to hold it together. I think. Yeah. What about sort of life on the tour? Um, some players always seem to spend time in company with other players I sense that you're not really like that you like to maybe just separate yourself a little bit not get dragged into all the sort of chat and all the stuff that goes on yeah yeah I do I keep myself to myself for it it's not because I'm shy or unsociable mm. I just don't find that I have too much in common with other snooker players mm. you know I always I think back in the days my early manager told me that I shouldn't be socialising with other snooker players when I was at tournaments mm. I think it was a bit of the um, what Ian Doyle used to say to Hendry and um I think that can I think that can be a good thing, and uh, you know I don't feel like I need to be part of the clique at a mm. snooker event. This is my work. Yeah, you know. But it's also it's very easy to get sucked into talking about formats and prize money and all the little things that people talk about. Where actually you might want to keep your mind clear and think about other things rather than just you yeah. know what's going on on the circuit. Exactly. I mean, you know, my my um, opinion on it is nothing's going to change um, from from what from, from what I say and what I want. So it is what it is. You know, if I was in charge, there's certain things I'd change. Um, but I'm not, and I'm a snooker player, so at the end of the day, we've got loads of tournaments, loads of chances to um, to earn a lot of money. And if you, you haven't even got to be that good these days <laughs> to earn a good living. Mm. You know, you haven't got to be great. You haven't got to be a tournament winner mm. to earn 100 grand a year, 150 grand a year. Um, so for the boys that, you know, are, are in that level, they should be grateful because they often couldn't go and get a job and earn that sort of money. Mm. You know, often struggle to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about your future ambitions. I mean, obviously, carry on playing as long as you can, but 
you've done a little bit of punditry with us at Eurosport and yeah. you've got your, your flying. Have you given thought to maybe 10 years from now what you might be doing? Um, I think, I, I don't know, I'm not sure how I'll get on actually working for anyone, being told what to right. do. Yeah. That's not, being told <laughs> what to do has never been um, one of my favourite things. Okay. Um, but I've been fairly wise with, um, you know, I've invested quite a lot in property. Mm. With, when I've had big checks come in, I've always bought and, uh, mm. and added to my property portfolio. And, you know, when you've been earning money for 10 years and over a course of 10 years, if you're hanging on to these properties, they're obviously making you a lot. Your money's working yeah. for you yeah. all the time. So, you know, if I can keep earning well, reasonably well for the next five or six years, then, to be honest, I won't be under too much pressure immediately to do anything mm. for quite some time, really. But you always send, you strike me as someone who actually likes to be busy. You yeah, like, of course. You've like got a snooker club and yeah. flying and the snooker itself and a bit of punditry. You actually, I, I get the sense sitting around at home would not be your thing. No. It, no, it, I've always got to be, um, if I go and spend 100 quid, I want to go and earn 200 quid. Right, yeah. I'm that sort of person <laughs> that whatever I spend, I've got to, I need it coming in this door before it goes out the front, mm. you know. So I always find a way to um, to make a living and to earn money. And I've got a lot of other business interests as well, which I've been, which I've done fairly well. And um, you know, I'm moving into the property market really now of, of de- developing with my other half. Um, she's Stella. She won the Apprentice four years or five years ago, didn't she? So she's an entrepreneur, mm. and um, you know, we've both got. Um, a keen, uh, a keen mindset to make money, and she's been such a help to me because she's got the winners, a, a winner's mentality, mm. and I've learned so much from her. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's good. And also, I think I'm right in saying you've been working on a book. Yeah, so I have. What's the um, date with that? Um, me and Snooker Backer have been have worked on it a lot. Um, I think he was going to get back into finishing the final few chapters. Um, it's going to be really good I'm not just saying it because I'm doing a podcast for you but it will be a really good eye opener and uh, I've done quite a lot of things that a lot of people don't realise and uh, you know a lot of successes and a lot of failures and it's good you know it's a bit of a roller coaster story Mm. and with the health issues thrown in it appeals to a wider market than just snooker Mm. Um, but yeah I'm going to have to get on his case because I think um, I was a Brexiter and he was a Remainer, so I think we had a bit of a fallout over that. Okay. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Well, on that political note, we'll end it, Ali. But uh, one thing I want to say is that it's great to see you looking so well. And it's great to see you competing again and and welcome back, I guess. Yeah, cheers, Dave. Thank you. Cheers, Ali. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network.